is good to be with you this morning, good to be home. This summer has been a hot mess, hasn't it? It's been a hot mess, and it still isn't over. My heart has been heavy so often these past months. I've been dismayed, despairing about the violence in our country and in the world. So much hatred, so much ugliness, so much bloodshed. When will it end? Even on vacation, there's really no way to get away from it all. News coverage is everywhere. It's nearly impossible to avoid the media frenzy that magnifies every awful event. The news coverage that fires up our fears feeds our sense of helplessness and fuels our feelings of powerlessness. So I return now to you with questions. What can I possibly do? What can I possibly say to bring hope to my own sagging spirits and to yours? As I asked myself these questions in preparation for today's service, my thoughts kept returning to my summer vacation. Not just the endless horrible news cycle, but the places, people, and events that transpired the little but essential things in my life that kept flickers of hope alive in me. Gary's and my first destination was Illinois. We returned there for a family reunion. Not everyone could make it, but many did, including all four of my siblings and many of our children and grandchildren. So about 35 of us in all got together on June 4th. My mother would have been so pleased. Until she died, all of us kids would come from anywhere we were in the country to be home together on Thanksgiving. That had not happened since Mom's memorial service in September of 2012. So the summer's family reunion was a big deal, and it was heavy with memories of the family matriarch who had so often brought us together in the past. For some of us, anticipating this event was tinged with anxiety. Before I elaborate on the anxiety, here's something about my family that I don't often bring up, but is kind of part of the story here. My maternal grandfather was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. That's right, the KKK. I never knew him. I'm certainly not proud of what I suspect were his racist views. My mom says she didn't realize that her dad was a Klan member until she was well into adulthood. She seemed surprised when her brother, my Uncle Glenn, told family stories about my grandfather's KKK days. They were mostly tales about the Klan's union-busting activities in the coal mining country of southern Illinois. There's even a book about it called Bloody Williamson County. My mom insisted that any Klan activity in her hometown had nothing to do with racism. I think she was naive and sheltered. Although I do believe there was probably not as much outright hatred and hostility in Illinois as there was in Alabama, say, or other areas of the Deep South. My mom was a good-hearted Southern Baptist who never was able to move much beyond a literal interpretation of the Bible 
and a a profound respect for and belief in the gospel she was taught. She never really did get Unitarian Universalism, no matter how many times I tried to answer her questions. But I know her concern for my soul was genuine and was based in sincere faith and a deep love of me, her heretical daughter. Still, I wasn't above ridiculing and flouting my more liberal views in her face, especially when I was a teenager. I got tired of hearing things like, I think we should be kind to people of all colors, but the Bible says that races shouldn't mix. So I kind of enjoyed worrying her about telling her how much fun it was having Ron Wynn, an African-American boy, in our youth group. And I spent hours on my, on my guitar playing and singing with great passion and volume Janice Ian's song, Society's Child. Do you remember it? It's a song about a young woman whose mother turns away the black boyfriend that comes to the door of their home. The mother and everyone else in the song tells the daughter to stick with her own kind. Now, in many places in this country and around the world today, no one bats an eye when encountering an interracial couple. But our son Paul, who currently lives in the South, knows that prejudice is still alive and well in many places. He encounters hostile stares, and occasional racist comments when he and his little girl, Loriana, go to a store or restaurant together. Paul is white, and Loriana is biracial. Paul worked as a sheet metal apprentice and journeyman for more than five years before moving to North Carolina. He was well aware of the rough and racist jokes that were sometimes passed off as humor in certain circles of the construction trade. He knew that my brother-in-law, retired president of the Sheet Metal Workers Union, had at one time been one of the worst promoters of these offensive racial jokes. While Paul was planning to attend the family reunion, and that brother-in-law, Paul's uncle Brad, would also be there. Paul was anxious about the reception that he and Loriana would receive. So was I. I'm happy to say that Loriana captured the hearts of her new extended family, and she was enjoyed by all as the vivacious, engaging little girl that she is. So my family, from the Ku Klux Klan to the love and acceptance of a little black girl, from people whose lives and experiences were once far more segregated by color lines, We've become an extended family of many colors, including the folks on the Lawrence side of the family tree. This gives me hope. My nephew Charlie was also anxious about attending our family reunion in June. Charlie came out to his friends in high school, but his dad and some family members were kept in the dark about his sexual orientation kept in the dark for quite a long time because they feared negative reactions and repercussions. Coming out to your family can be a very, very difficult thing for people who are gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender. Eventually, all of Charlie's extended family knew he was gay, 
Most of us didn't and still don't care. But there are still some religiously conservative family members who don't quite approve. This was our first reunion since Charlie went off to grad school in New York, and he graduated in May. Despite lingering anxiety about being accepted for who he is, Charlie decided to bring his friend Will to the reunion. And he courageously introduced Will to each and every one of us as his boyfriend. No more hush-hush. No more sweeping this important part of Charlie's identity under the carpet. To a person, everyone in my extended family was friendly and polite, welcoming even to both Charlie and Will. Now, I did see one sister kind of roll her eyes, but overall, the reception of Charlie and Will as his boyfriend was very kind and welcoming, and that gave me hope. We had a few drops of rain as our family reunion started. The kids couldn't find any snipe on their snipe hunt. Can you imagine that? (laughs) And we had some tense moments during the beanbag and uh, hula hoop competitions. But other than that, our family reunion came off without a hitch. A collection of 35 people with widely varying religious and political viewpoints came together in peace and fun and love, and that gave me hope. From Illinois, Gary and I made the long and beautiful drive through Wisconsin and Minnesota to South Dakota, where our oldest daughter Angie and her family live. Angie is former United States Air Force. Josh, her husband, retired Air Force, is now a Rapid City, South Dakota police officer. Angie and Josh and all of Josh's very religiously and politically conservative family awaited us. We hadn't seen any of them for about a year and a half, and during that time, Angie and I had had a falling out. The tension started when I posted some Facebook messages about Black Lives Matter. I posted the Black Lives Matter logo on my Facebook page following General Assembly in 2015 when the Unitarian Universalist Association affirmed a youth-led initiative to support the Black Lives Matter movement. Supporting Black Lives Matter was to me a response that came from deeply held religious beliefs and moral imperatives. It was about white privilege systemic racism, worth, dignity, and justice. To Angie and Josh, my support of Black Lives Matter meant that I was advocating, advocating the murder of police officers. Wow, how could members of my own family think such a thing? Let me tell you, There was no understanding achieved through Facebook messages or emails. We had a lot of the Dave and Sandy principles going on there for a little bit. So there was an unproductive barrage of comments from other family members and friends. Very short-lived, I stopped engaging. 
Angie was so upset that she unfriended me on Facebook. I don't know if I've ever been unfriended before. <laughs> but seriously, it, it was wounding. It was wounding. And for many months, any contact Angie made with us, it, it was directed solely to her dad. Gary was the guy caught in the middle because Angie refused to talk to me. I finally wrote her a letter convincing her, I think, that I would never want anything bad to happen to her or to Josh or to their family. I didn't try to change her mind about Black Lives Matter. I only tried to convey my love. Over time, Angie and I tentatively reestablished communication about simple things like birthday and holiday gifts for the kids. Thankfully, when we told Angie that we'd like to stop and visit on our summer trip, she was excited. But I was very, very nervous about it, especially at the thought of being cornered by some of Josh's family members, who I'm pretty sure think that Gary and I are heathens. <laughs> but guess what? We had a great time together. Angie and Josh had planned many activities and adventures in the Black Hills that we all enjoyed. While we were in Rapid City, Gary and I listened to Angie's husband talk about his experiences as a police officer. We heard some of his opinions about the people and situations he encounters. We just listened. We just listened. That was so important to do, and I admit it was difficult to do. But I think we all realized that we needed to respect one another's experiences and views even if we didn't fully understand or agree with them. Cherished values underscored our differing views, not ignorance or bad intentions. We were able to be together as a family and have fun despite our differences, and that gave me hope. In all these family examples, we realized that our relationships were more important than any ideologies we might have. At one time in my life, I would have thought that biting my tongue was a moral failure. I would. During that time in my life, hanging on to and fighting for my ideals was of paramount importance to me. Maybe it's the peacemaker in me. Maybe I'm older and wiser now. But I have come now to understand that no ideal, however grand, will ever be realized without the ability to maintain good working relationships with others whose values or ideals differ from mine. Living in a pluralistic society is challenging. Being in a congregation or group of any sort where there is diversity can be frustrating despite our highest aspirations. Election seasons are times when polarization and demonizing are especially rampant and disheartening. Most, but not all, Unitarian Universalists are religiously, socially, and politically liberal. That should come as no surprise. 
and we of the more liberal political persuasions experience our congregation as a haven from the very conservative political climate in this state. But we shouldn't assume everyone here is like us. We know that there are politically conservative UUs, some of them right here in this congregation, some of them leaders of their parties. In fact, we have leaders in both the Republican and Democratic parties who are members of this congregation. As part of our Sunday morning routine, we generally say that people are welcome no matter their political affiliation. But it's not easy to maintain that welcoming attitude. It's not easy for either side, if I may lump us all together for a moment into that rather false dichotomy and misleading dichotomy of liberal or conservative. Let's face it, as you heard in our reading this morning, we're really, we really only want to hear things that support our own convictions. We have very strong convictions and opinions, and we like to think we have the right opinions, no matter who we are. Well, when it comes to personal opinions, you can't easily separate the religious from the political. Our religious, moral, and ethical values play out in the way we think about any political issue or platform, any political candidate or party. We all have what social psychologist Jonathan Haidt calls righteous minds, which is the title of his 2012 book, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. Haidt argues that even though we tout reason as a basis of our views, we humans are fundamentally intuitive, not rational beings. In their studies, Haidt and his colleague Joseph Craig determined that there are basically five foundations of morality. Briefly, they have to do with care and harm, fairness and reciprocity, loyalty to one's in-group, authority and respect, and purity and sanctity. There's a great TED Talk if you want to learn a little bit more about Jonathan Haidt's uh, point of view. So ask yourself, which of these five foundations of morality would be most highly evidenced in liberals? Care and harm, fairness and reciprocity, loyalty to one's in-group, authority and respect, purity and sanctity. If you guessed the first two, you'd be correct. Liberals are very strong when it comes to compassion and justice, and they value those moral attributes almost to the exclusion of the other three. What about conservatives? They value compassion and justice too, but they are more often grounded in loyalty to one's in-group, authority and respect, purity and sanctity. According to Haidt, who labels himself as a liberal atheist, conservatives actually have a more balanced overall moral approach than liberals do. He says, the crux of the disagreement between liberals and conservatives is the rejection by liberals of authority, loyalty, and sanctity. Liberals say, let's celebrate diversity, not common in-group membership. They say, let's question authority. We even have t-shirts that say that. 
and they say, keep your laws off my body. (laughs) Hate says that liberals have very noble motives for doing these things. Any, excuse me, traditional authority, traditional morality can be quite repressive and restrictive to those at the bottom, to women, to people who don't fit in. And we know that any moral value taken to an extreme can be destructive. Hate writes, liberals speak for the weak and oppressed. They want change and justice, even at the risk of chaos. Conservatives, on the other hand, speak for institutions and traditions. They want order, even at some cost to those at the bottom. The great conservative insight is that order is really hard to achieve. It's really precious, and it's very easy to lose. Hate asserts that once we see this insight, once that we can see that liberals and conservatives both have something to contribute, that they form a balance on change versus stability, then we can step outside the moral matrices in which we are trapped. But I wonder, can we really move beyond our preferred and greatly reinforced mindsets? Maybe, maybe not. One of my meteor summer reading projects was John D. Inazu's book, from which I took our reading this morning. Inazu says that given the way things have been and seem to be going, it is highly doubtful that two people or two groups who are highly polarized on any issue will ever change the other's mind. But in order to even approach a greater understanding, in order to find ways to move forward together, we have to practice three things, tolerance, humility, and patience. By tolerance, Inazu means a willingness to accept that there are going to be genuine differences, a willingness to accept that there will be profound moral disagreement. He says we should not aspire to an anything-goes, happy-go-lucky kind of tolerance, but to a practical enduring of difference for the sake of coexistence. So there are times when live and let live and it is what it is are good approaches. Humility, the second of Inazu's three points, reminds us that our human faculties are inherently limited. We forget that. Our ability to think, reason, and reflect is less than perfect, a limitation that leaves open the possibility, are you ready for this? That we could be wrong. In other words, our lack of certainty in, our lack of certainty in, or proof about our views should lead us not to righteousness or arrogance, but to a more humble posture in our engagement with others. And finally, patience. Inazu reminds us that patience involves restraint, restraint, persistence, and endurance. Staying in relationship, 
being civil and kind, even though we might have major differences in our viewpoints and beliefs. Just plain hanging in there with one another holds open the possibility that such endurance can lead us to greater understanding and empathy. Perhaps if we follow Inazu's lead and focus on nurturing our abilities to be tolerant, humble, and patient, we will even find areas of agreement and ways to work together for the common good. That's really his point. We can find ways to work together for the common good. I hope so. I hope we can practice tolerance, humility, and patience here and that we can work together for the common good. I saw this happen on a small scale within my family this summer, and that gives me hope, hope for all of us.